Open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 3. Well, I'm sure many of you are getting together with family and friends this week. So as much as possible, try to be safe on the roads and be praying for one another and giving the gospel to your family and friends, sometimes if possible in word, but definitely always in our actions, right? In our spirit. And sometimes family can be the most difficult to give the gospel to. And so we praying for you this week, and I pray that you will uh, encourage one, one another. And if you are in here today and you don't have someone to be with this Thanksgiving, let us know. We'll pair you up with someone else in this room here. Mark chapter 3. Well, the gentleman on the screen there, his name is Charles Spurgeon. Raise your hand if you've heard of him before. You know him? Okay. So he was a pretty famous pastor in London in the 19th century. And he was written about in the newspapers. He had many publications that went around the world. Uh, I think he preached a little less than 4,000 messages in his lifetime. He was a famous preacher. And he was a good preacher. Preached the gospel. Five-point Calvinist. So a lot of different distinctions people remember about him. He's a Baptist. So there's a lot of different things. But he was very famous. And with that, though, came a lot of pressure. In fact, he had times of depression. Times where he was really low. And some of the things that brought him the lowest were his physical ailments. And he would sit in his house and sometimes in his study and he would suffer there. And he would uh, suffer physically, but also sometimes even mentally just thinking through all the pressures upon him. There was a man named Thomas Johnson who came to the preacher's college, the pastor's college that he had there. And he walked into his study one day and, and started talking to him. And befriended him. And actually, Charles Spurgeon opened up to this gentleman. And Charles was having a particularly difficult day one day. And he was in a study. And Thomas Johnson walked in and sat down next to him. They began to talk. Actually, Thomas's wife was next to him as well. And, and Charles began to pour out his heart to Thomas Johnson. And talk about how he was suffering and he was in pain and he was ill. Thomas Johnson was an African-American, actually. His parents were taken over on a slave ship to Virginia and were on a plantation. When he was 10 years old, he worked as a slave in the fields. He, uh, his mother was separated from him at 10 years old. He was left by himself. He was bitter about life. I mean, wouldn't you be? And his mother and his family was taken away. He was all by himself. It was through his teen years, he was whipped and he was beaten. But a friend on the slave plantation gave him the gospel. And one day, he heard the good news of Jesus and got saved and found freedom in Christ. And from that point on, he decided he wanted to go back to Africa and be a missionary and tell people in Africa about Christ. In order to do that, he had to have some training. Well, eventually, there was the Emancipation Proclamation, and he was set free. He was 28 years old when he was set free as a, as a free man, and he didn't know how to read. Didn't know how to write, but he wanted to be a preacher and tell people about Christ. So the next logical step for him was to go to a pastor's college. And he heard about Spurgeon's pastor's college, went across the ocean, and was able to learn to read and write and also be study to be a pastor. It's interesting. Here is a man who was a former slave, a man who was illiterate, 
and he's sitting and he eventually was able to learn to read and write and go to college, pastor's college. But he was sitting there with Charles Spurgeon, encouraging Charles Spurgeon. In fact, Spurgeon was suffering and Spurgeon said, well, this is nothing compared to, I know what you took. I mean, I'm just having some ailments. And he's like, I know you were whipped. You know, you were treated as a slave. And, and Charles was actually, um, Spurgeon was actually a real, um, he was very outspoken against slavery, especially in America. And this man, Thomas Johnson said this, he says, these bandages, talking about Charles bandages are the sufferings we can see they're on the outside. And he took his hand, took Charles' hand and put it in his hand. He says, they are flesh, they are blood, but they are only the physical, my friend. What about all your sufferings that nobody can see? And he started to speak truth into Charles Spurgeon's life, (laughs) talked about suffering and how God loves him and God is here with him. You know, it's amazing. A common person, I mean, maybe even below common, if you want to say it that way, I don't mean to be demeaning, but he was a man that was definitely not uh, high in society. But God used him in a great way, and God used him in a unique way. We're going to talk today about how God uses common people in extraordinary ways. God has called the common to do his work. We're we're in Mark chapter 3, and we've seen many different people in Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 2, many different people in groups who have interacted with Jesus. The Pharisees and religious leaders, they oppose Jesus. In fact, if you look in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we can remember that they teamed up with Herodians, the plot to destroy Jesus and his ministry. Then earlier on, we met tax collectors and sinners who, who heard the good news of Jesus, repented, and turned to Christ. We met thousands of people who came to be healed, right? I mean, think about what this news, that there was a person who could heal. Think about what that would do to this area and to that country. I mean, the news quickly spread about Jesus. I mean, you have a place where there aren't hospitals. And if you go to a place like that, you're going there to die, right? You have medicine, but medicine doesn't actually really help you, right? This is the first century. So can you imagine if you had a person who could heal you? I mean, if you had cancer and you're going to die, and there was a person who all you had to do was touch him and he could heal you, what would you do? If you had a child who was mangled or Or if you were crippled, what would you do to get to Jesus? And some were following Jesus because they wanted him to be king. Some were following him because they healed him or they wanted to be healed. Some wanted a free meal. And there were others who were truly following him because they wanted to be his disciple. In fact, if you remember Mark chapter 1, what did uh, Mark say there? Jesus preached. He would go around and he preached, repent and believe the gospel. And so there are people that did that and they followed Jesus or some at least claim to. Now we think about disciples. We think about 12 disciples, but there actually were more than 12. There were many that followed Jesus. Now, some of those disciples didn't continue on. In fact, if you look at Mark chapter or John chapter two up here on the screen, verse 23, it says many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So there are many people that believed in Jesus and followed Jesus, but then eventually those people, some of those people didn't continue on. In fact, many didn't continue on. John 6, 6, 6, wouldn't you know, says people walked away from Jesus, right? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So we have many different people here. And from these disciples, Jesus selects 12 to be 
a special group that he calls apostles. Today we're going to look at the people to whom Jesus ministered and also the disciples who followed him. And again, notice that these people were just common, regular people. They were ordinary people. You think about Jesus coming into this world, God coming down in flesh, where would he go? I mean, wouldn't you think he'd go to Rome or Egypt or or somewhere where it's like, this is where the the large population is. Wouldn't he go to the Caesar or wouldn't he go to Jerusalem and spend all his time in Jerusalem? He did go to Jerusalem, but he didn't spend all his time there. The majority of his time he spent in Galilee. He spent around farmers and around fishermen and children and women and small town folk and country folk. I mean, Jesus preached and called ordinary people to follow him. Isn't that pretty shocking to think about? But Jesus, his gospel is for everyone. And those disciples who followed him were just common, ordinary men. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. We're going to look this week at six or three distinctives of the call of Christ upon his disciples. Now, we're going to get to three this week. And we're going to do three more next week. But we're going to look over the next two weeks at these six distinctives of the call of Christ upon his 12 apostles. And we're going to study this to help us understand what does that mean for us? How should we follow him as a disciple of Christ? So would you look down with me in Mark chapter 3, verse 7? The Bible says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him. So again, we have two groups, the disciples and a great crowd that's following Jesus. And verse 7 goes on to say, and uh, they were from Galilee. This great crowd was from Galilee. So that's where Jesus was, and he was ministering in that area around the Sea of Galilee. Judea, he would go down there some. In Jerusalem, Idumea, which is down to the south. And from beyond the Jordan, that's the east by the Jordan River, beyond the Jordan River. And from Tyre and Sidon, that's to the north and to the west by the Mediterranean Sea. So people are coming from everywhere. Basically, you could say they're coming from north, south, east, and west, okay? They're hearing about Jesus, flocking to him. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many. So that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So basically, if you were sick, you would come to Jesus and you would touch him. What would happen? You're healed. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, that would pretty, be pretty amazing to see. I mean, can you imagine all these sick people gathering in one place? Like that's called the ER, right? How many like going to the ER? I don't. And usually when I'm going there, I'm going to visit someone. And I have this little game I play in the ER. Don't touch anything. Because <laughs> I don't want to get sick. And unfortunately, I don't know about the ER here, but ERs I've been to, they have metal detectors. So I've got to empty out everything in my pockets, right? Put it in this little jar. That How many people have dumped their junk in there with all their germs? You know? I don't think they sanitize that very often. But anyways, that's another story. But the point is, think about all these people gathering together. Sick people coming to Jesus to be healed. It's amazing. And you can imagine if you wanted to be healed, and there's thousands of people there, what would you do to get to the front of the line? Can you imagine that? I mean, think about it. They're by the Sea of Galilee, maybe on a hillside there. If you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, you can kind of picture that. And think of thousands of people there, and one guy, 
that they're all trying to touch so they can heal, right? I mean, you go to Disneyland, if you want to get to the front of the line, right? You try to push your way forward. What do people do? They give you nasty looks. What are you doing? I'm going to be up here. And that's supposed to be the happiest place on earth, right? But it's not. Because people are selfish and they want to be at the front of the line. But think about it. I mean, here, this is life or death. I need my son to be healed. I need to find healing. I want to get and touch Jesus. So think about the pressure. Think about the stress upon Jesus physically and socially and even spiritually. I mean, there's warfare taking place here, right? I mean, Satan has released the full fury of hell upon Jesus. The, the demons are oppressing and possessing people. Look at verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up to the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Verse 14, and he appointed 12 whom he named apostles. So they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And then he goes through the rest of that passage there. We'll look at that next week. The 12 apostles. Let's pray. Father, we humbly bow our hearts before your word. We believe your word is truth. We want to know the truth. We want to know you in a, in a deeper, more intimate, relational way. So I pray this morning that you will, you will take away the worries of our life. You will remove the distractions. You will help our, our phones and our minds to be silent and help us to listen to you. And teach us this morning. Give us grace to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at six distinctives of the call upon the disciples of Christ. And first of all, the disciples were called to follow Christ, which meant they were to learn from Christ. In verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. The followers of Christ were simply called what? disciples they were they were students or they were learners and christ's disciples were to follow him and basically simply learn now back in this day a teacher or a rabbi would have disciples follow them and they wouldn't necessarily invite them they would just have a gathering and the people would choose this is the rabbi i'm going to follow and jesus did some of that we saw that a little earlier in in john chapter 2 verse 23 that they would see his miracles and they would follow him but jesus did something that was a step beyond that and he actually selected those people who were going to be close to him and going to be in a more intimate setting with him he chose 12 disciples and so we saw that in, in mark chapter 1 right peter and andrew and james and john he said hey come follow me and then mark chapter 2 we saw that with matthew or levi the tax collector if you look in the book of, of the Gospel of John, you can see that as well with Philip and Nathaniel. So up to this point in the Gospel story, we've seen Jesus select certain guys and say, Hey, please come follow me. Be my disciples. And what did he call these men to do? What was their responsibility? Well, he called them to learn from him in a close relationship. That's discipleship right there. To learn from him in a close relationship relationship they were to understand what did jesus believe how did he view this world what did he live like and they were to 
live and learn with him in a loving relationship, a loving friendship and, and, uh, and teacher relationship. Now, in our day, when we think about uh, being a student and following a teacher, a lot of people think it's boring, right? We just earlier said, how many are thankful you don't have school this week? And the kids almost hit the ceiling, right? And, it's, and, and, and they might like their teachers, but do you really love your teacher? Well, if they're your mom, <laughs> you have to, okay? But I can think about through school. I can think of so many teachers I just didn't like. Can you ha- do you have those in your mind where you're like, that lady, you know? And I won't tell stories because they could be listening. <laughs> they, they might still be listening. I don't know if they can do that or not. Or if they go to the internet. But I remember one lady particularly. I mean, the, the kids in the class were just not nice to her. I had a lady when I was in high school. She threw erasers at me. And uh, she even threw a stapler once. True story. You can ask the students in my class. Go on Facebook and find them. And, uh, and she did it kind of in fun, I guess. My dad was the headmaster of the school. So I think she felt like she'd get away with it. I don't know, but I liked her. I mean, kind of, not that moment I didn't, but you know, you think about your teachers today and we just think about, oh, well, maybe it's kind of boring or I mean, school is maybe a little dull and and we don't really have a choice if we have a teacher or not. But what was happening with Jesus, his disciples here, it was actually their choice to follow him. And actually it was not just a choice to learn and get information. It was a choice to actually adore him. It was a choice to actually live, to be, to love him and to have him love them. So after Jesus rose from the dead, he went to Peter by this sea here. And he said to him, Peter, do you what? Do you love me? And Peter said, what? Lord, you know, I love you. So this is the kind of relationship they have, right? It was not a a sexual love or anything like that. So if you have that idea in your mind, get that out of your mind. Okay. It was the idea that they had a close, close bond and friendship. that was very, very intimate. Every day, these men listen to Jesus. I mean, think about it. Jesus would teach, and then he would pull them alongside. Sometimes he would rebuke. Say, Peter, you're being like Satan right now. Get behind me, right? And sometimes he would say, hey, you understand that? Let me help you understand this. And they saw Jesus. They saw his example. I mean, think about this. After Jesus resurrected and Peter preached, the church began to gather together. And they actually called the teaching of the apostles, the apostles doctrine. Now, where did the apostles get their doctrine from? They spent time with Jesus, right? They learned from Jesus. Jesus passed on. Here's what I believe. This is what the truth is. They saw Jesus respond when, when the Pharisees came against him. They saw Jesus respond when Jesus responded with compassion towards those who are feeble. They saw him pray. And so they were spending time with Jesus. So much so that in the book of Acts, when they were, when the disciples were in Antioch, the people in Antioch, the unbelievers in Antioch, called them a name. What was that name they called them? Christians. It's like you're, you're being so much like that guy, Christ, that we're actually going to label you Christians. Little Christ, right? Christians. I mean, think about that. They saw a group of people that looked so much like Jesus, they actually nicknamed him Jesus. I heard a story this past week from a member of our congregation. And they were working with someone. um, And this person was a believer and they were not a believer. They were working with this person who was a Christian. They didn't know that person was a Christian at the time. And so as they were 
uh, noticing this Christian's life, something was different about them. So they decided, well, I'm, I'm going to see what, why this person has so much joy and, and peace in their life. And so they said, you know, can I have your diet plan so I can know what you eat? You know, obviously that might be something that's a factor. So that person that was not a believer started getting the information from this Christian of the diet plan. And well, they didn't give him more happiness and peace. And so they came back and, you know, said, Hey, I'd like to exercise with you and figure out your exercise routine. Maybe that would help. You know, that didn't give peace and joy. So this person said, what is it to the Christian? What is it that gives you so much joy and peace? And the Christian said, I'm a Christian. And this lady eventually heard the gospel and she got saved. Isn't that an awesome story to hear? I heard that this past week. I was like, that is exactly what is happening right here. It's like you learn and you love Jesus so much that Jesus shines through in your life. And then people look at you and it's like something is different about you. And what made the difference? What makes the difference? This, there was a lady who lived and loved Jesus and that shone through in her life. In fact, Matthew chapter 28 Jesus says, disciples, go do what? Make more disciples, right? So we're not just to live in, live in light of the truth of God's word. We're not just to love God. We're actually to pass that on and have a relationship with other people that passes on the knowledge and the love of Jesus. And it's healthy for every one of us in here to daily be living in a close relationship with Jesus, but also to encourage others to do the same thing. So we must look at our life, examine our life, and say, am I living in a close relationship with Jesus? Where am I at with Jesus right now? And am I encouraging others to do the same? The disciples were called to learn from Christ and also, secondly, to use their natural gifts and resources for Christ. Look at in verse number 8. In the middle of the verse, it says, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, that's Jesus, they came to him, verse 9, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Now, how did the disciples know where to get a boat and how to use that boat? What do you think? They're fishermen, right? I'm from Indiana. There's a lot of corn in Indiana. There's not a lot of water in Indiana. If you were to get me on a lake that was 13 miles wide by 7 miles wide like the Sea of Galilee and say, hey, get, that, get a boat and let's go across, we're going to all die. Okay? I don't know. I like going on boats. So if you boat and you want to take me with you, that's great. But don't put me in charge. So how did these guys know how to, how to get a boat and how to use a boat? Because they had those skills. In other words, it's amazing to think about this, that God selected men who had skills, and he used those skills to help advance the gospel. When I was over in Israel in February last year, I was staying on this, the Sea of Galilee, and I was reading through, I decided to read through some of the gospels. So I sat there in the, on the side of the Sea of Galilee, got up at like 5 o'clock in the morning to start reading through, and I was like, okay, so they went from this city across the sea to this city. And then they're in this city, they went across the sea. They're always getting a boat and going somewhere. And it occurred to me, that people talk about the disciples as if they're a bunch of ignorant, stupid guys. And why did Jesus choose them? We don't know, but he did. So he can choose you if you're ignorant, stupid too. And it's like, actually, no, it was very strategic. It was very strategic to pick men who had skills that could get across a lake because this is where Jesus did most of his ministry. 
And so Jesus used the skills and the resources of these men to advance the gospel. Peter knew how to get boats. Andrew knew how to navigate across the sea. James and John had the strength to row 13 guys across a sea, right, to the other side to minister. And God used these men's natural gifts and resources. In fact, I think it's interesting to even think about, like, back in chapter 2, verse 15. That's Levi, Matthew. He becomes a believer in Jesus, follows Jesus. And so he takes people back to his home. Who does he take there? His friends, who are tax collectors and sinners. He gives them a meal. So he uses his resources, his relationships, to advance the gospel. Isn't that pretty cool to think about? Or remember Peter, he takes Jesus into his home, and there's a guy that needs to be uh, healed. And so someone takes him to the top of Peter's roof. They rip his roof apart, and they drop this guy in there, and Jesus heals him. I mean, these are the resources that Peter used to take care of Jesus to also to advance the gospel. And so Jesus did not go to the, re- the religious people in Jerusalem and say, hey, give me, I-, I need people that are super smart and I need people that have a lot of money and this is how I'm going to advance the gospel. He said, and he definitely went to those people, but he went to all people and even the common people. And he went to fishermen and tax collectors and ordinary professions. And he said, you follow me. And he used their natural skills to advance the gospel. And it's crazy to think about this as you go through the Old and New Testament. Isn't this how God works? I mean, he takes a a young man who doesn't have a lot to do, but sits out in a field all day with a bunch of sheep. So he learns an instrument, plays some songs named David, right? And he writes most of the book of Psalms. So centuries later, we're singing and reading Psalms from a guy who was a young child, learned to young man learn to play an instrument and sing songs. I mean, God used the natural skills and abilities he had to be able to bring him glory. Or how about Timothy? Remember Timothy in the New Testament? Paul finds Timothy, a boy, or he's a young man who had a Greek father and a Jewish mother. So Paul travels around and preaches to the Greeks and the Gentiles and to the Jews. And then later on, Peter pastors a church, a couple churches, but one particularly in Corinth, he pastors that church. Remember in, in 1 Corinthians how there's a division between the Jewish people and the Gentile people. I mean, isn't it neat how God brought a man to be a pastor of a church that could help bring unity with two different groups? Like God used his background and how he grew up with an unbelieving Greek father and a believing Jewish mother, and God used that to advance the gospel. Or even think about the, the writer of this book, God, the book of um, the Gospel of Mark. He had a mother who was wealthy, who had a home in Jerusalem. And she opened up her home for Jesus to be able to to go there and have his last supper for the church to be able to meet in that building there and to gather. So over and over, we see Jesus using the background, the difficulties, the skills, the resources of common people to advance the gospel. So what resources do you have? Like, what gifts has God given you? What's your background like? Sometimes people think, particularly Christians think, well, you know, I don't have anything, right? If I was gifted like that person, like if I had the skills of of Tommy and Josh, right? Then I could be used by God. Like, no, that's not true. God has given you unique gifts and he's given you unique abilities And he's given you a particular life so that you can advance the gospel. 
Some people think, well, if I had the resources like that person, you know, if I was rich, you know how much I could do for this church, (laughs) right? Some people think like that. But listen, we all have something to give. And what's neat is, as we look around this room, if we were to interview each person in this room, there's unique things about you. Maybe you don't even know, but there's unique things about you. And God can use those things in a very special way to do something great for his kingdom. I imagine that that African-American man sitting there in that preacher's college in London had no clue that God would use his background to help encourage a man like Charles Spurgeon. Not amazing to think about. Are you using your talents and your skills and your resources to advance the gospel? The disciples were called to follow Christ, and that meant also to be immersed in the work of Christ. Verse 10. Mark chapter 3, verse 10. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the son of God. Think about what these men were able to experience. Thousands of people pressing against Jesus, wanting just to touch him, to be healed of their diseases. And what would happen again when they touched him? They were healed, right? And imagine this sight, though. I mean, I was going through the Internet, and I thought, I should put some pictures up of some sick people. (laughs) But then I was thinking, I don't want us to be sick to our stomach. But that's the reality. That's the reality. There are people that were suffering. The word disease here in verse 10 literally is the word to whip or to scourge. They, they had real problems. And in that society, if you were a diseased person, particularly with a skin ailment, but if you were a diseased person, then you would have been separated from society. According to Old Testament law, Leviticus 13, Numbers chapter 5, those infected with diseases were quarantined and separated from Jewish society. So the people coming to Jesus, many of them were lonely. In fact, actually, it was a blessing that it was out in the countryside because if you had some kind of skin disease, you couldn't go inside a walled city like Jerusalem. In fact, you couldn't even go into the temple to worship because you were considered unclean. In fact, the Jewish leaders took pride in the fact they had a a far distance between them and anyone that was unclean, anyone that was ill and diseased. And even the Old Testament scripture said that you can't touch someone who is unclean. Leviticus chapter 5 clearly commands that. So no physically healthy person would ever touch a diseased person because that would cause him to be unclean. So that's why it's so shocking here in chapter 3. And also in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus touches someone or allows someone to touch him to be healed. In fact, go back, go back to Mark chapter 1 and look in verse 40. If you remember this story from a couple of weeks ago, there's a leper that came to him in verse 40, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, moved with compassion. Jesus stretched out his hand. I mean, here he is stretching out his hand to make himself, if you want to say it this way, make himself unclean. And he said to him, he touched him, and he said to him, I will be clean. And Jesus could have just said it. He could have just said, be clean, and it could have happened. In fact, he did that in many other times. Why is it that he used this illustration here of touching him to make him clean or allowing people to be, 
to touch him so that they would be clean. Why did he do this? Well, Jesus was using this as an illustration. And he was declaring that he was the clean one that could heal people. He was the one that was pure and holy. And as an unclean person touching Jesus, Jesus was taking their uncleanness upon himself. And he could take away the sickness of their body, but also it was an illustration that he could take away the sickness of their soul. The sin and diseases of the people were, were symbol, symbols of a deeper sickness of their soul. I mean, think about it. There's people coming to Jesus with ailments, and some of them are maybe about to die. But all of them coming to Jesus have a sin-sick heart. And they are all separated from God, and they will all eternally die separated from him. When I read through this passage, I thought about Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah stands in the temple and he sees the holy God, the holy Lord, in the book of John, Jesus lets us know that that was him, that was Jesus. So you think about him and what happens when he sees the Lord. He falls down as I'm a wicked, vile, sinful person. And the Lord has a coal taken to his mouth and he touches his lips. And he forgives him. His guilt is gone. His sin is gone. And that's kind of the picture you have here. The holy God is walking around this earth. And all you have to do is touch him. And he's the one who can heal. But even more importantly, he can heal your soul. He can forgive your sin. In fact, the book of Matthew, Matthew 8, 17. Matthew says this. He writes this down saying, Jesus healed to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And Matthew was quoting Isaiah 700 years before Christ wrote that. And Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, where Isaiah wrote about the Messiah who was going to come. Surely he has borne our griefs, our illnesses and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken and smitten of God, afflicted. And he was pierced. And this happened at the end of his life. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. But Jesus, with his death and his suffering, he can heal you. He can forgive your sins. So friend, if you're in here today and you have a sin-sick soul, you know your heart is burdened with the weight of guilt. Jesus can release you and forgive you today. And think about the disciples. They were able to witness all this. They were able to see what was happening. Jesus casting out demons. But there was something else that's not actually in the book of Mark. Between chapter, uh, Mark, chapter 12, or Mark chapter 3, verse 12, and Mark chapter 3, verse 13, there's something missing in there. So go back to Luke chapter 6. And it's not missing because someone took it out. It's missing because Mark decided not to put it in there. But Luke, the historian, the Christian historian, decided to put that in here. There was something that took place that was very important in Luke chapter 6, between the time when Jesus was in the synagogue and healed a man with the withered hand, and when he called his disciples. So Mark, or Luke chapter 6, verse 11, so it's Matthew, Mark, and the next chapter, or next book, I mean, is Luke. Luke six eleven says, but they, that's the Pharisees, were filled with fury and disgust with one another, what they might do to Jesus. So that's, you remember that from Mark, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Verse 13, and when day came, 
he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. So what happened between that time period when he called his disciples before that, when he came from the synagogue, he went out to the mountain and he prayed. You can go back to Mark chapter three. If you want to, he went out and he prayed over in Israel. There's a mountain called Mount Arbel. We don't really exactly know, but we think this is probably the mountain that Jesus climbed. What do you think he prayed about when he was up there? As Jesus prayed all night long and he looked out amongst the villages, he saw the fires of people's, uh, maybe in their homes or outside of their homes. Maybe he saw the moon reflecting off of the lake and off of villages. What do you think he thought about and prayed about? I mean, he prayed all night long. Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian, wrote that there were probably over 200 cities and villages around the Sea of Galilee, which could have accounted for about a million to two million people. So think about all those people squished around that sea right there. And as Jesus looked down, don't you think he prayed for them? And I'm sure Jesus prayed in submission to his father. I'm sure Jesus prayed uh, in love and adoration to his father. But I think he probably also prayed for those people. And I can imagine he looked over that area and saw millions, thousands and millions of people for whom he had come. To heal their sin-sick hearts. To live, to die, and be resurrected for them. And he was an all-powerful, and he is an all-powerful, all-present God in a human body. So think about it. One guy up there, one guy who is God, but still as a, in one human body. To spread the news of the gospel to all these people. What was his plan? What's the plan? Well, let's pick a few common guys who will fail me. Who will deny me, who will be fearful to go start the church, right? That will have then courage and faith to go out and spread the good news. No wonder you prayed all night, right? Think about that. But that was God's plan. And here we are today, right? God fulfilled and is fulfilling his plan. But think about that. He prayed for those people, but I think he probably also prayed. For those representatives that he was going to send out. The very next day, what does he do? He picks 12, 12 apostles or sent ones to send them out to do what he's doing. That is preach the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew chapter number nine. When Jesus saw the crowds, what did he do? He had compassion on them. Don't you think on that mountain as he's up there praying that he has compassion in his heart. He's moved. All the people who have rejected me. All the people who need their sins forgiven. All the people who need the gospel. In Matthew chapter 9, when he says that he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed. They were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so what was Jesus, the result of Jesus' compassion towards people? He said, they need people to go shepherd them. One of the things I love about Simi Valley is driving up the 118, well, either side of the valley, right? And you drive inside and it's kind of go up a little hill and you come down and what do you see? It's beautiful, isn't it? You see the whole valley, all the homes and stores. And I think it's pretty cool. And that's one of the people ask me, what do you think about this area? I'm like, that's, that's probably one of my top things I like about it. But what do you see when you come over that valley? You see that? 
Do you see people? Do you see homes that represent people living there that need Jesus Christ? I mean, do you see a valley that is in desperate need for the truth? What does it cause you to do? I mean, when you come over that 118, do you think, oh, these people need Jesus? God, send laborers here. Like when we moved here, that was something that we wanted to have in our heart and we desired to have in our heart was God, send people here to give them the gospel. And when we decided to come, we came over that 118. It was like, this is where you're sending us, right? And I think probably almost every day I've been here, I have people ask me, why would you move to California? People ask me that all the time. In fact, it's actually a great way to give the gospel. I'm just going to tell you. Because I tell people, well, I didn't move here because of politics. I didn't move here because of the housing. I didn't move here because of the economy. I moved here because there's a place that needs light. I wanted to go to a place that I could preach the gospel and give light, the light of Jesus Christ. And can I ask you as a congregation, will you pray for this valley? I know some of you are thinking, man, I wish I could get out of here, right? Okay, if that's where God leads you, I, I celebrate that if it's in God's will. But if it's not in <laughs> God's will, maybe you could pray for it not to be God's will for you. But seriously, like, have a heart for this place, right? I mean, come on. It's sliding into the sea with, with political problems, right? I mean, yeah, we got some thing, days ahead of us. We don't know what they are going to hold in, in the days ahead. But we do know this, that there's a peop, there are people around here. That need the gospel, right? I mean, they're helpless. They are harassed by sin and by Satan. And they need a shepherd. They need Jesus Christ. And so let's pray that God would send laborers. And you know what happens when we pray for God to send laborers? (laughs) He sends us. That's exactly right. He sends us. So Lord, send me. First and foremost, Christ calls you. To be a follower, to follow him. Give up your life. Turn from following your own ideas and your own impulses and commit your life to Jesus Christ. And so the question for all of us in this room is, have you done that? Are you doing that? And second, as a disciple of Christ, we're to continue to learn from him and live for him. You might say, well, my life's pretty messed up. You don't know how messed up my life is. You know what? God can save you, redeem you, and can use that messed up life to advance his kingdom. You might say, well, I don't have much to offer. I'm not that gifted. Well, whatever you have, you might just have the skills to row a boat across a lake. God can use that. Peter and John, they were unskilled (laughs) in the gospel, fishermen. Jesus trained them. And they went out and they preached the gospel. In Acts chapter 4, they preached the gospel in the temple. And the religious leaders brought them in. They were upset with Peter and John because they were continuing on Jesus' ministry. So here are the high, these high-minded, ultra-religious Jewish leaders. And they are these lowly fishermen. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, when they, the religious leaders, saw the boldness, saw the courage, saw the faith, saw Christ, right? And Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. It is kind of astonishing to see God use people that you thought, you'd think, yeah, I don't think they, God could ever use them. But what was, the diff- what was the difference? How was it that God was able to use 
these men who were just common fishermen. The end of verse 13 says, and they recognize that they had been with who? Been with Jesus. They were disciples, right? They learned and lived and loved their Savior. Wow. May Christ, may Christ change us. May we spend enough time with him that he changes us, that people see that in us. Wow. There's something different about them. They've been with Jesus. And by his grace, may he give us the boldness to live as his disciples, to learn from him, to use the gifts and the resources to serve him, and then to be immersed in his work. His work of dependence and prayer, but also his work to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, I don't know what your week looks like this week. I imagine many of you are traveling. You have this on your heart. You are being sent wherever you go, whether you are here, whether you go to family, whether you go to friends, you're being sent out as Christ's disciples to spread the good news. Let's pray. We believe each life, God, has a story. And if it's a life turned over to you, it's a story that is potentially so beautiful. Because, God, you can write an amazing story. You can take ashes and you can turn them into beauty. God, you can take a life that is burdened with sin, that is miserable, depressed, beaten down, and you can lift it up. You can redeem it. You can forgive. You can give hope. God, you can change lives. And I imagine, I believe, there are probably people in this room right now who are feeling crushed. In this life, these worries of this life, maybe even sin, is crushing them. I pray, Father, they will call out. Call out to Jesus Christ to save them. I pray they will find the hope forgiveness that's in Christ today and for our church renew our minds help us to think properly and correctly about where we live how we live who people are what they need and God even the gifts and the skills that you've given to us and may we may we give to you our lives and God may you take our lives and use them to advance your kingdom and your gospel and to bring you glory in Jesus name Amen.